You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. Thanks for tuning in. I've got a whole bunch to do today. I'm going to play some clips from some upcoming videos. I haven't turned them into videos yet, but I just finished the audios, and I think that you'll get a lot out of them, so I'm going to play those in the podcast here in a little bit. But first, I'm going to talk about some show notes and some things that have been going on with me. It's been a little while since the last update of the podcast, but I have been really busy with this uh, new schedule that I've got, which I really enjoy, um, where I only do emails two days a week and uh, do pro- have time devoted for projects and stuff. I've been able to do a lot more and get a lot more done. So I have expanded a little bit of the projects that I've been intending to do and have a lot of things sort of a different varying degrees of accomplishment. Um, so one of the things I think that I'd been talking about for a while was the Jehovah's Witness Project, part of the broader project of complete revamp of DVD Tract. DVD Tract is a website where um, teach people how to make DVDs of certain gospel presentations in a lot of cases geared towards specific people groups like in this case Jehovah's Witnesses. So I have an old one but trying to revamp that one. I had almost given up with that even though I've spent uh, months learning about Jehovah's Witnesses and stuff because it, it became evident that if I was going to do it right I really needed to like just devote my whole life to it because it really requires uh, the dedication of somebody that has that as a ministry. It's a very, uh, it's a very th- serious topic, and I think that the best people for it are those that that spend their, uh, you know, that's what they do as a ministry. There's lots of uh, outreaches to Jehovah's Witnesses out there, and I became became aware of that as I was writing scripts for this and getting frustrated. So I, in, in a long long story, I, I basically was going to give it up, and then I had an epiphany, if you can call it that to to basically continue to do it but to change the format in which I was going to do the the track so still on track with that and I'm excited about it uh even more now but um and it's finally taking shape but still a little ways out but in regard to that revamp of DVD track track there has been some progress made just got finished with well the DVD the the new DVD track the base level track is finally done, and I posted that on the front page of the website uh, not too long ago. And that, unfortunately, is only available via direct link. So you have to actually go to my website and see the embed of it. You're not going to, or go to DVD Tract. It's on the front page of DVDTract.com, and you'll see the gospel video there. Because I used some clips from uh, Eric Luddy or uh, that video there, uh, as per the agreement with him, it is unlisted on YouTube, but. Again, the purpose of this is to make DVDs of and to hand out to people. Um, but anyway, so got finished with that. And last night, just got finished with the uh, DVD tract for homosexuals. It, that thing has taken me forever. And the, the frustrating part is it shouldn't have. I mean, it was pretty simple what I wanted to do to revamp it. And uh, for some reason, it just took took forever. I would work on it periodically. And um, anyway, just long story, all kinds of difficulties. But finally got it done last night and that is up on DVD tract as well as just posted that on Facebook as well if you know somebody that is a homosexual or struggling with homosexual desires or whatever I think that these testimonies from these two ladies are are really important I think that there's something there that they will find a lot of hope in and so check that out and what else that's pretty much it with DVD tract um, I've got two projects that are sort of brewing, and they're sort of in the research stage. They are um, the Sabbath issue. I've been thinking about doing a full-length video about the Sabbath, but I, 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 I go back and forth with it about like how productive is that. On one hand, I think that I hear Sabbath issues. I get so many emails about the Sabbath all the time. It, for me, it would be productive to be able to just give somebody a link and say, here you go, you know, finally done with it, as opposed to sort of re-explaining it on an individual basis to people. Um, so I've been, I've been studying that off and on for really years, but now it's sort of gotten into a really serious phase of study and it's, there's just so much good information there. I'm really blown away by the, and how edifying it is to learn more about the, 
the different covenants and, and all the symbolism and just great stuff that's there. If anybody is, is interested in that topic, the topic of the Sabbath, one of the just seminal books is, um, is Sabbath in Christ. It's just this big, thick book by a guy named Dale Ratliff, Ratliff, I don't know, uh, but Sabbath in Christ, it's best to get it from his website. It's a lot cheaper there. I saw some on Amazon that were, you know, pretty expensive, but from his website, it's relatively cheap. And it is a very, very thorough treatment on the Sabbath if you are interested in something like that. Um, he is a former Seventh-day Adventist, so it's also got a lot of those kinds of uh, um, arguments that are dealt with in it. So check that out if you're interested. Another project that I've been sort of toying with in my free time is prophecy stuff. I just can't get away from it. There's just so much intrigue there and I keep finding stuff. I'm not trying to find this stuff, but it just keeps coming up and I and I really like it. Although uh I have actually just passed on uh my notes on a particular subject to a uh well-known prophecy writer and I hope that he just does it for me. Basically, that would be awesome so I could just cross that off the list, but uh he seems excited about it. We'll see how that works out. Uh I'd like to have him on the show at some point uh in the future. And let's see, there is something, what I'm going to do, I guess, here is I'm going to play some clips, but uh, I did want to talk about something for Australians real quick. Um, I've been sending out these Christianity 101 DVDs. I love it. I've been sending them all over the world, and just just one of my favorite things to do. But I've noticed I've been sending a lot of them to Australia, so... There's like a lot of nowhere to run listeners in Australia, like a lot. So anyway, somebody from Australia asked me the question, do I know of any good fellowships or any, you know, in Australia? And I mean, I don't, but I bet you guys do. And I was thinking it would be cool if you guys wanted to maybe answer that question or, or network with other Australians or whatever. Um, I don't know. A good place to do that would be the comment section, possibly of this episode, which I'll put out on, uh, 9-8, September 8th, 2011. If you're from Australia, just mention that in the comments section of this one, and maybe you guys can figure out where good fellowships are or good places to meet or something like that. Maybe you guys can uh, can uh, network or whatnot. So, just thought I'd mention that. And going to move on now to the two projects that I have just completed and I've been working on for a while. Well, I can't say that I've completed them because all I've really done is written the script, done the research, written the script, and recorded it, and I've not turned it into a video yet, but they, their ultimate their ultimate thing will be to turn them into videos and use them for the upcoming TV show, which I am really excited about, and it's really coming together as far as ideas go for it, and um, the early production and stuff is going well. So, but these are two apologetic-type questions. Again, the vision for the TV show is to be really evangelistic in nature in that it's going to be at a local thing, you know, and I, I'm basically cold calling a lot of people that are channel sur surfing. And I want to answer questions that really hold a lot of people back from even considering the gospel. You know, those, those apologetic type questions like, well, you know, the Bible's been written by men and, you know, can't trust what it says. And I've dealt with that to a certain extent, but I wanted to sort of put that um, kind of classic apologetic argument into my own words and, and put that out there as a video. So I've got about what a 12 or 13 minute video that I'll play about that one. And then I've also got one that I just completed not even a few minutes ago. And that is, uh, on, um, are all the religious religions in the world, uh, the same and, and this kind of religious pluralism argument, but I, I took a different angle that I honestly don't know or I've never heard another apologist take, which is um, essentially a positive case for their, their similarity, at least in one aspect, and the, uh, the argument for their effectiveness in regard to their stated goals. And I'll explain that as I play this uh, audio clip. And I don't really think I need much more in intro to that, so I'll just play that and I'll talk to you on the other side. This presentation will address the statements like, all religions are basically the same, and all religions are different paths to God. In one sense, this is true, and in one sense, it's false. It's false because the religions in the world are at odds about very key issues. That is, they claim certain things that, if true, would make the others false. Some claim that there are many gods. Some claim that there is only one. 
Some claim you can become a god. Some claim that you cannot. Some claim that Jesus was God. Some claim that he was not God, but only a good teacher or a prophet. Some claim that hell exists. Some say that it does not. Some claim that you will be judged for your sins before a holy God. Some say that there is no repercussion for your actions. At the very least, we must admit that this means that some religions are false in their view about God and salvation. It does not prove that any particular one is right, but it does show that there must be a lot of false religions if they are claiming contradictory things about these fundamental issues. There is another sense in which this claim, the one about all major religions being basically the same, is true. I also believe that this same thing that makes them all the same in one sense also explains why all major religions exist in the first place. All major religions like Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism believe that there is something wrong or broken with the human soul and they are trying with various systems and rituals and practices to fix this problem. The problem that they are all trying to deal with is the problem of personal sin. Now, they call it by various names, but define it in almost identical terms. They are all trying to reach a place where they are free from the bondage of sin and the cycle that sin causes. And I will show that not only do all religions claim to be trying to deal with sin as their reason for existence, they also admit that they have no answer for it. Allow me to prove this point first, as I can imagine that some of you would have some objections on this point. Within Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, I don't think that this point needs much proving. Most would agree that the concept of sin is of primary importance within these religions. So let's move on to Buddhism. What Buddhists will agree on is that the goal of Buddhism is to attain nirvana, which is the ending of ignorance, as they say, of something called dependent origination thus escaping what is seen as a cycle of suffering and rebirth. This cycle of suffering is called samsara. And before we look more into this, notice that the purpose of Buddhism is to be free of samsara. The very definition of nirvana is the absence of samsara. So the whole religion is based on getting out or getting rid of something, not attaining something. This obviously presupposes an inherent or inborn problem that needs a solution. So let's look a little closer. The word samsara refers to the process of continuous pursuit or flow of life, or the continuous but random drift of passions, desires, emotions, and experiences. Samsara is continuous suffering, or what they call dukkha. When Buddhists talk about being free from suffering or dukkha, they are talking about suffering that is a part of samsara. Now this is where it gets interesting. Buddha gave what are called the Four Noble Truths. The second one tells us what the cause of suffering or dukkha is. He says it's tana, here translated as the word craving. In the Dukkha Samudaya, the suffering's origin, it says, this is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is this tana, or craving, which leads to the renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. Let's look a little closer at Tana. Tana literally means thirst, and it figuratively denotes, quote, unwholesome desire or craving, craving for objects which provide pleasant feelings or cravings for sensory pleasures. It's a term for wishing to have or wishing to obtain, it also encompasses the negative, as in wishing not to have. It is sometimes taken as interchangeable with the term addiction, except that that would be too narrow of a view. So, Buddhists are trying various methods to free themselves of their inborn, unwholesome desires or cravings. In fact, the very pinnacle of Buddhism is to attain a state, nirvana, which is defined as freedom from the cycle of suffering, which is caused, according to Buddha, by those cravings for unwholesome things. Now let's take a look at Hinduism. Hinduism is almost identical to Buddhism in terms of its ultimate goal. In Hinduism's case, it is also to achieve a nirvana-like state called moksha, and it literally means release. Moksha is the liberation from samsara again, which is the cycle of rebirth which is considered suffering. 
That should sound pretty familiar by now. Again, the cause of suffering of samsara in Hinduism is worldly desires. What keeps humanity captive in samsara is something called avidya. This means ignorance or deception. One author said this about avidya. It is ignorance about the nature of being. It is a limitation that is natural to human sensory or intellectual apparatus. This is responsible for all misery of humanity. Notice again that this is an inborn problem of all people. Something is wrong with us, according to Hinduism. One quote from Contemporary Hinduism, Ritual, Culture, and Practice, and The Essentials of Hinduism, a comprehensive overview, says the following, quote, Perfect unselfishness and knowledge of self as the attainment of perfect mental peace, as a detachment from worldly desires. Such realization liberates one from samsara and ends the cycle of rebirth. In other words, you need to have a perfect righteousness in regard to your selfhood or ego and detachment from your worldly desires. And again, this freedom from your natural broken state is the goal of all life, according to Hinduism. We're going to come back to Hinduism and Buddhism when we look at the probability of attaining freedom in either of these religions. But first, I want to take a look at the ancient Greeks. The Hellenistic or Greek philosophies are very ancient, almost 600 BC, and Stoicism was the most successful of all of them. And we'll look more closely at it in a moment, but first, let's look at Cynicism, because Stoicism was heavily influenced by Cynicism. Cynicism had the principal goal of freedom from suffering, just like the rest of these religions. What was the suffering caused by, according to the Cynic philosophers? Quote, suffering is caused by false judgments of value, which cause negative emotions and vicious character, end quote. So first, notice the parallels. Much like Hinduism and Buddhism, they believed that suffering was caused by ignorance or deception, and that ignorance caused negative emotions or immoral or vicious behavior. I looked up that word vicious, and it perfectly describes what we would call sinful behavior. Addicted to or characterized by vice, grossly immoral, depraved, uh, a vicious life, given or readily disposed to evil, or reprehensible, blameworthy, wrong. So, once again, all suffering, according to them, is caused by sin. And the religion was trying to free themselves from their predisposition to react sinfully. This eventually bred Stoicism, which again has the primary goal to be, quote, free from anger, envy, and jealousy. One of the most famous Stoics, Epictetus, said this, Freedom is secured not by fulfilling of men's desires, but by the removal of desire. The idea that there is something wrong with us inherently and the quests to be liberated from the sinful desires is so prevalent because, might I suggest, it's so obvious. Take, for example, a small child. We all know that the word mine is one of the first words that a child learns and that if that child is never told no or disciplined, its natural disposition is to be an unruly child. Our default nature is not to be good and the whole world seems to know it. The Bible, while noting the moral depravity of the culture in Romans 1, 24-31, points out that the people live immorally, while at the same time knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, verse 31. In the Bible's view, the problem with people is not so much that they do not know right from wrong, but that they do know right from wrong, and do wrong despite knowing better. Romans 2.15 says, They show that what the law requires is written in their hearts, a fact to which their own consciences testify, and their thoughts will either accuse or excuse them. Now, where you start to get the wide variation in world religions and practices is when you start to talk about their different methods for getting rid of that sinful heart. There are all kinds of traditions and rituals and practices that attempt to achieve their stated goals to reach the place of freedom from the suffering caused by sin. It is in the methods of trying to attain their goal that makes, say, Buddhism different than Hinduism. But really, even in that, they are very similar. All three of the religions that we've mentioned so far do this by various types of what's known as aestheticism. This includes various things like abstinence from various sorts of worldly pleasures, or meditation, or certain diets, even flogging oneself. Basically, religion. The concern I have is this. 
Let's say you were in one of these three religions we mentioned, Hinduism, Buddhism, or some type of Stoicism, and you were doing all these religious practices as good as you possibly could. Let's say you decided to be a monk or a yogi and sell everything you had and live on top of a mountain, eat only rice or whatever, and meditate all the time. Would it work? Would you solve the problem? In other words, what is the success rate? Do any of these religions claim to achieve their goals? Let's start with Buddhism. How often do Buddhists achieve nirvana? These people would be called arhats. The oldest teachings of Buddhism teach that an arhat is free from all defilements, without greed, hatred, delusion, ignorance, and that craving we talked about. There's quite a lot of debate among Buddhists as to whether there are any arhats alive today. Here are some quotes from a discussion found in the most popular online community of Buddhists. Notice the variation of answers and the complete uncertainty of whether or not any exist at all. First, quote, My guess is that if any arhats are alive today, they would be in robes. Even in the Buddha's time, it was very rare for a layperson to achieve arhatship. The moderator of this forum said, I think that the simple answer is that we can guess and give our own opinions, but there is no documented, officially recognized, globally accepted enlightened being, and as such, all discussion is conjecture. Another person said, I would like to believe that arhatship is achievable in this lifetime for most, if not all of us, if we really are diligent in our practice. This is based on absolutely no solid evidence whatsoever, just a hunch. Another person said something very interesting. They said, a Buddhist monk here in Australia once talked about this in one of his Dharma talks during a meditation retreat. He asked if there were any arhats alive today. He made the statement that, of course there were, and if he didn't think that there were any, the Buddhist path would not be worth following. He didn't go into how many there were, but when I spoke to him about this privately later, he told me that he knew of three, quote, stream enterers in Australia, all monks, of course, by the way, stream-enterer refers to the first stage of arhathood. Some noble characteristics emerge, it is said, and they have up to seven more lifetimes as a human. Okay, so then the person continues, that's it, three. As for fully awakened arhats, clearly the implication was that they didn't exist in Australia. I would think that you would have to go deep into Thailand or Burma and maybe Sri Lanka to find arhats, and even then, I don't think you would find too many. So, this speaker basically said that Buddhism is not worth following if it doesn't work, yet, when pressed, he didn't seem to know any instances of it working, and instead offered a handful of people who were kind of close. But, of course, how could you verify such a claim anyway? Now, there are some that would claim that achieving nirvana is common and easy, and they do this, essentially, by redefining what nirvana is. This is especially true in the New Age, where they equate spiritual experiences and supernatural things and emotions such as the Kundalini experience as achieving enlightenment. And they may indeed believe that, but that would be inconsistent with the Buddhist idea of freedom from samrasa. In Hinduism, it's the same story. Sure, there's a lot of gurus out there, some of which even claim to have attained moksha and are free from worldly desires, but here again, even if you believe that the guru had actually attained freedom from this bondage of ignorance, as they might say, you would still have to admit that it is a fantastically rare occurrence, even among those that are trying to follow all the religious rules and aesthetic practices. Enter reincarnation. A religion that could not deliver on its stated reason for existence could not last. People would eventually walk away from it, much like the Stoics did. In fact, the only fundamental difference between Stoicism and these religions is the concept of reincarnation. The concept of reincarnation in Hinduism and Buddhism essentially delays the inevitable question, what's the purpose of doing this if it doesn't work? They are essentially told that it's not supposed to work, or most likely won't work in one lifetime, and it could take up to 80,000 or so. So don't expect to actually be free from the bondage of sin that humanity suffers from. It kind of makes one's life seem to be less important. I mean, it's really not that big a deal. Sure, you could work really hard at being religious if you want. It won't get you there, but you might be closer next time. At the same time, you can just coast through life and have the I'll do it later mindset. This is where those fundamental differences in the religions comes in. What if it's true that we only have one life, and that it's really valuable, and that we only have one shot at it? Now let's shift gears entirely and look at Islam. 1.3 to 1.6 billion people follow Islam. 
While Islam has no trouble with the concept of sin and have elaborate lists and different types and levels of sin, unlike the other religions, there is no hope of freedom whatsoever from the desire to sin. The heart of a man will continue to desire just as much to sin, no matter how committed the person is to following the religion. The thing in Islam is therefore constant repentance. One of the hadiths say, O people, turn to Allah in repentance and seek his forgiveness, for surely I make repentance a hundred times every day. And this repentance, if it is genuine, according to a Muslim, will be accepted to a point. Muhammad said, Allah accepts the repentance of his servant so long as death has not reached his collarbone. It does no good to argue whether Islam works or not, like we did with the other religions, because there is no claim from Islam to be able to attain freedom from the desire to sin in the first place. In addition, there is never any assurance that they would ever be shown mercy by Allah, even if they were incredibly devoted religiously. Even Muhammad said that he did not know if he would be shown mercy from Allah. A changed nature, that is, not just a resisting of sin with your willpower, but a genuine heart-level hatred of sin instead of a love for it, and a thirst in the other direction, a thirst for goodness, is talked about in the Old Testament in the form of a prophecy. It was said that there would come a time when this would happen. Jeremiah 31.33 says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the next chapter, in verse 40, it says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear or reverence in their hearts, so that they will not depart from me. Again, in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, it says, I will give to you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In the New Testament, Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we find that the Christian is someone to whom this has occurred. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Something really interesting is also said in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, where it says, In him, speaking of Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit there is the same one that the old prophecies were talking about. It was by God giving us his spirit at the moment of repentance and belief in the gospel that accomplishes his purpose of changing our hearts. This is why 1 Corinthians says to the Christians, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And the evidence of this happening is only found in the dramatic changes of one's heart and actions. The Bible is quick to say, if somebody claims to be a Christian, but you don't see any of the evidence of it, they're clearly not a Christian. Listen carefully to the types of things in this next verse, and these are the opposites of the evil nature that all the religions we looked at said were keeping us in samsara. Galatians 5.22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Against such there is no law. So these things are the so-called fruit of the Spirit. That is, if you have the Spirit of God in you, these things will develop over time. It's the only evidence we have of whether a person is a Christian or not. The ironic thing is that in Christianity, you don't try and try until you achieve the new heart. The new heart is the only way to get in in the first place. It's actually the starting line, which is completely different than all the other religions. In fact, the other religions have a bit of an ironic paradox. That is, when you do aesthetic practices like meditate and eat only the right foods and do all the religious things that they do, it kind of develops something I call meditation stripes, a kind of religious pride, a belief that they are more superior than others because of their devotion to their religion. But this actually destroys any possibility of that ego developing. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that 
not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Romans three twenty six and 27 says this, To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. After this new heart was given to me, and it started to become obvious that I had been given this new love, this desire for good and a hatred for sin, it became just as clear that I did not earn it. There was nothing I could have done to achieve such a change. One of the best passages of all time on this is in Titus 3, verses 3-7. through It says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior towards man, appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Also, for more on this, Romans chapter 6 is all about this topic. So read that whole chapter if you want to know more. One way to demonstrate my point that unlike other religions, not only does Christianity claim to solve the problem of bondage to sin, but it delivers, and delivers on the order of hundreds and even thousands per day, is to appeal to your experiences with true Christians. I bet that a large portion of you know people that you know used to be a total wreck and live lives governed by sin that have completely changed because of Jesus. You might not understand it, you may have rationalized that they went crazy. I mean, how else can you explain such a 180-degree turn? But you know them. You probably know a few of them. Again, I'm not talking about someone that started going to church or got religious. Being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. In fact, Jesus was probably one of the most anti-religious people that ever existed. I'm talking about someone that you have looked in their eyes and know from the bottom of your heart that they aren't the same person that you once knew, and you see that they have attained a peace that surpasses all understanding. I think that the reason all the religions know that they are sinful is because what the Bible says is true. He has put in everyone's heart the knowledge of his laws. Therefore, when they rebel against him, they know instinctively that they are condemning themselves. And that is why all the religions are seeking to answer the sin problem. The problem is, is that they all are so busy with deeds, with striving to act good, with only a slight hope of ever being good. The Bible speaks to them in this way. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you want to know more about what the Bible says about salvation, see my videos, What Do I Have to Do to Be Saved? and Legalism Debunked. These two videos, I think, will give you a solid overview of why it can be claimed that a man that lived 2,000 years ago could be said to make this new covenant with God possible. Thank you for your time. All right, there it is. And let me know what you think about that one. I'm actually interested to see if people hate that or like it or, or whatever. It's something I've been talking about for a long time with individual correspondences with people, but I've never actually just did the research and, well, made sure everything I was saying was accurate. Um, so let me know what you what you think about that. And moving on to the next one for the upcoming TV show. This one is, like I said, about trusting the Bible. There's a lot of questions that people ask about the Bible. <clears throat> I've dealt with this in various videos before, but never in a form that's just got it all there and, and is sort of packaged in this way. So I'll I'll play this one, and you'll notice there's a little section in there that I say William Lane Craig is about to say something, and then it's a big blank. 
and that is because I'm waiting on permission to use a particular clip with William Lane Craig on that issue. So uh, just look past that one for now. So here is Can We Trust the Bible? The questions and objections I'm going to cover today are, number one, can we trust the New Testament as a historical document? Number two, hasn't the Bible been rewritten so many times that it can't be trusted? Number three, wasn't the New Testament written hundreds of years after Christ? And number four, was the Bible changed? So let's start with the first one. Can we trust the New Testament as a historical document? This one is relatively easy to answer. Scientifically speaking, if you cannot trust the Bible as a historical document, then you cannot trust any ancient document, because there are more copies and fragments of the New Testament than there are for any ancient document in the world. If you look at this chart, which lists the ancient texts with the most copies in existence, you will notice that the New Testament tops the list with 5,600 copies. Coming in second, you have Homer's Iliad with 643. And third is Sophocles with 193. And you can see that it's pretty much downhill from there. In fact, most documents have about 10 or less copies. The next factor that plays a role in the science of textual criticism is the time between when the document was originally written and when the first copies we have of it are. The New Testament again ranks number one of all known ancient texts, with a gap of less than a generation, about 30 or 40 years. And again, Homer's Iliad comes in second, but it has a whopping 500 years between the time that it was originally written and the time that we have the first copy. You can see that with all the other ancient texts, this gap is pretty significant. In fact, there's an average of about 1,100 years between the time that these texts were written and the time that we have the first copies. The next, and probably the most important, data point in textual criticism is the question, do these copies agree with one another? That is, do they all say the same things? And you can again see on this graph that the Bible comes in number one, at 99.5% agreement between these texts. And as a side note, the other half of 1% is simple spelling errors and other minor things that don't even affect any part of the narrative. For example, instead of saying Jesus, a variation might say Jesus Christ. To put this in perspective, let's say you have five handwritten letters, and they all agree with one another. That would not be too amazing. But the more copies of that letter that there are in existence, the more impressive it is that they do not differ from one another. Now, when you consider that the New Testament has 5,600 copies in existence, the most of any ancient document in the entire world, the fact that all of them agree with such precision is more than impressive. It's totally amazing. And this is also answering the objection that people often say, hasn't the Bible been rewritten so many times that we can't trust it anymore? People make this claim because they're not aware of how the Bible was translated. An author, Matt Slick, from CARM.org, said the following of this objection. This is a common misconception. Some people think that the Bible was written in one language, translated to another language, and then translated into yet another, and so on, until it was finally translated into English. The complaint is that, since, in this scenario, it was written so many times in different languages throughout history, it must have become corrupted. The telephone analogy is often used as an illustration. It goes like this. One person tells another person a sentence, who then tells another person, who tells yet another person, and so on and so on, until the last person hears a sentence that has little or nothing to do with the original one. The only problem with this analogy is that it doesn't fit the Bible at all. Now, you remember our chart where we had 5,600 documents that all agreed with one another to 95.5% accuracy? Well, those documents are written in the Greek language, and all of the world's translations of the New Testament, whether they are English or Spanish, French, Chinese, Swahili, whatever, are translated from the Greek to that language. So there is only one step in this game of telephone. I think that modern English speakers get confused because there are so many English versions of the Bible, like the King James Version and the New International Version, the New American Standard Bible, and so on. What the different versions in English do is try to either update the words, since the English language, like all languages, are evolving. So a word in 1611, when the King James Version was written, does not always mean the same thing as it does in 2011. 
There are other reasons for different English versions, too. Publishers sometimes strive to give an even more accurate translation of the Greek texts. See, Greek is a very deep and complex language, and English really isn't. For example, the Greek language has four words that it uses for love. One for romantic love, one for brotherly love or friendship, and one for love of a family member, and then agape, which kind of is a love that you do, sort of. Uh, where English has just one word for love. So, yeah, sometimes different Bible versions will try to make a clearer picture of what the Greek language is trying to say. But we can always track that and we can always test them because there are concordances available and lexicons and other things where we can test what they've actually translated it as. So yes, there are different English versions, but all of them have to obey the original Greek texts, which can be easily shown, as we've already seen, not to have been victim to the telephone game idea. Now, none of these questions have been speaking about the truthfulness of the document or making claims of its validity. All that it's doing is saying that you can be sure that what you are reading is the same thing that was originally written. The next few questions have to do with that. The first is, wasn't the New Testament written hundreds of years after Christ? This is actually a really important question that plays into the trustworthiness of the message of the New Testament. To discuss this aspect, I'm going to play a clip from the famous philosopher and Christian William Lane Craig, courtesy of 100Huntley.com. Next, let's look at the idea that the Bible was intentionally corrupted or changed by a nefarious group like the Illuminati. This is a claim that is made all the time. Now again, going back to our 5,600 copies that are 99.5% agreement with one another, they are also from vastly different time periods and were discovered in many different countries. If anyone had attempted to change any of them, it would be the most obvious thing to everybody. All you would have to do to prove the idea that the Bible had been changed is to, say, find one copy that said one thing at an earlier time period, and then find ones from a later time period that said a different thing. It would be the easiest thing ever to do. It would be impossible for a forger to change all of those 5,600 texts without being noticed, most of which had not even been discovered yet. This is why people only make the claim that the Bible was changed and why you never find anyone offering proof that it was changed. There are lots of scholars that study these ancient texts of the Bible, even scholars that very much dislike the Bible for personal reasons. Yet, you do not find that these scholars that know these things that I've been explaining today make these claims that the Bible has been changed over the years. They know far better than to claim that. The final thing we will cover is the Gnostic Gospels. This objection has become popular lately with movies and books like The Da Vinci Code. The Gnostic Gospels are writings by the Gnostics that claim to be written by apostles like Peter or Thomas or Judas. The first thing that you should know is that no one, not even the Gnostics, think that these writings were actually written by the apostles. They admit that they are pseudographical. In other words, that they were written by people who simply claimed to be these apostles, but were not. The other thing that you won't hear from Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code is that these writings do not show up until almost a century later. It's ironic that the same people that think that the actual Gospels should be questioned because of their teeny tiny gap don't question the Gnostic Gospels, which have a much bigger gap. Not to mention that the Jesus that the Gnostic Gospels portray is not the same Jesus from the earlier Gospels, nor is he the one that's prophesied by the much earlier Jewish writings. Their version of Jesus conveniently conforms to their own religion many, many years later. From a textual criticism standpoint, there is absolutely no question whether or not the Gnostic Gospels are the real Gospels. They are clearly not the real Gospels. The real Gospels in the New Testament were either written by the Apostles, like Matthew or John, or the associates of the Apostles, like Mark and Luke. The Gospel of Thomas, however, is a 2nd century work that was written well after the time of the Apostles. So let's recap. Number one, can we trust the New Testament as a historical document? Yes, it is literally unmatched in the ancient world for its pristine accuracy. Number two, hasn't the Bible been rewritten so many times that it can't be trusted? No, if you want to use the telephone analogy, then there were always only two participants in the game. Translations went from Greek 
to the respective languages consistently. Number three, wasn't the New Testament written hundreds of years after Christ? No, it was written about 30. And, as a side note, because of the creeds and other spoken traditions evident in the New Testament, we can actually trace it back even earlier than that. And number four, was the Bible changed? No, this would be so easy to prove that if it were true, you would hear about this all the time. The Bible's mere endurance speaks for itself. For thousands of years, people have explored every nook and cranny of the Bible. Alleged difficulties have been systematically answered. The more one studies without bias the teachings found in the Bible, the more that you will see that they conform to the truths of experience and human nature. It is just as powerful to the lives of people today as to those thousands of years ago. The question is, what do we do about it? If this is true, then the Bible is by far the most important book on our bookshelves. And what do we make of this man that lived 2,000 years ago, about which was said, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. I encourage you all to read about Jesus, if for no other reason than because he is the pinnacle of all personality. There is nothing like him in literature or history. He is in a class by himself. Discover him for yourselves in the pages of your Bibles. All right. Well, you know, with the remainder of the time, I just want to recommend a book or two and also encourage you all to really further and continue your education in various topics and stuff like that. Um, I went to a uh, used bookstore this um, uh, this whatever I can remember what day it is Saturday I guess, and we didn't find anything and we were we were leaving and they have outside this book bin you know free books and I looked down there and there was this book that said when good men are tempted I was like well okay it's free let me take it and I read in the back of it the guy seemed like he was you know, whatever, his name's Bill Perkins, he is a, uh, whatever, he, you know, regular guy, and I read it, it was like actually pretty good, and I went, actually, I'll, that's not true, I read up to, let's see, page 48, and then I bought the uh, audio version, and listened to that on my, I had to drive a long time the next day, so listened to it there, and it reminded me of how great it is to listen to to audiobooks that really mean something and further your education uh, spiritually and things like that. I would especially encourage this concept to those of you that are married and uh, especially if you if you have like issues with your marriage or something. One thing that you can do without doing anything else is to um to commit to listening to really good books on marriage from a Christian perspective. And you don't even have to say, hey, let's talk about this. Or, you know, you can buy the regular book if you're not a big listener or whatever, if you're a reader. But basically just read them at the same time or listen to them at the same time. If you get them at, you know, an online place like ChristianBook.com, you can download the MP3s, burn them to CD. You can listen to them on your way to work or whatever. Obviously, a lot of you guys don't have any trouble with MP3s. But, but my point is you don't even have to set up a time to talk about them. It'll just naturally happen. And one thing that you can do is just commit to being basically an expert on Christian marriage books. Having heard a lot of the arguments and hear a lot of the things over and over in different formats, um, we're just awash in really good information about stuff like that, about relationships and stuff. And it's just not stuff that we a lot of times naturally understand. That's why um, there's so many opportunities for marriage counselors and, and all this other stuff. And that's why there's a big problem with all kinds of stuff is because it's not default attitudes that are healthy attitudes. A lot of times it takes, um, work and it takes hearing stuff and that, that makes sense. And, and these sort of mini epiphanies. So I would encourage you to check out some books about marriage. If, if you have never heard of these two books, I recommended them before, but I think they work in tandem with one another. And one of them is called Love and Respect, and the other one is called uh, The Five Love Languages, really popular uh, book. But they are really true. They're, but they really, I do think, work together. If, if, if you're having marriage troubles, listen to me. Love and Respect, Five Love Languages. And you know what's a great thing about these two books? 
is that you don't really even need to do what I said. You don't need to actually have your spouse read it too. Both of those things are things that only the interested party can read and change a marriage. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people uh, you know, out there I was listening to the radio the other day and it really said something really profound. It was like focus on the family or something like that. I don't know what it was, but it basically the, the guy was talking about how a lot of folks will say, well, you know, only if only my uh, husband was a believer, I could have a Bible study. Or if only my wife was, um, you know, more uh, supportive, I could really go much further. It's sort of all these ideas that if only they would do something, right? If only they would change. And the great thing about Ephesians 5 and, and, and marriage is that the you can change it just by working on yourselves. And a lot of times that's why marriages and stuff are broken because you're not doing your thing. Even though it's hard to do because, <laughs> because why would you want to do your thing when the person isn't doing their thing? You know, why would you... Why would you want to be the first to change when they're, all, you know, got all these problems, you know? And they do have the problem. I'm sure that they have the problems, you know? So it's not really about if they do or don't have the problems. It's about, um, despite that, you forgiving them and working to love them, respect them, etc. And that's really what it's all about. I think that's one of the reasons that the Lord, uh, you know, does the stuff that he does. I mean, that's kind of where we were at. You know, we were forgiven uh, when we didn't deserve it, you know, he 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 was the first to to move in that situation in a sense. So uh, anyway, so yeah, uh, those two books I mentioned are really great. I'm sure that you could do a search on on those sites uh, and find a lot better books that are more relevant to your situations. All right. So again, in wrapping up here, uh, for all you Australians, all you Aussies out there, check out the comment section of this uh, this episode nine eight two thousand eleven on um, whatever my website name is um, nowhere to run radio dot com. And uh, also, don't forget the new DVD tracks. If you're interested in handing out tracks, the instructions are on the front page of dvdtrack.com also the new homosexual dvd tract and um the sabbath book sabbath in christ and that's it i think so we will talk to you soon thanks a lot for tuning in thanks a lot for everything your support your prayers it really means a lot to us and we'll talk to you soon Bye-bye. thanks for listening to nowhere to run you can download all of the archives to this show and others i've done for free at nowhere to run radio.com Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.